welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Uh, we are doing, what are we doing, Creep Show today as part yeah. of our self-aware horror uh, series, cycle, volume, chapter, uh, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. Uh, this is a movie that I have never seen before, even though I love George Romero. At least I say I, George, I love George Romero, but I've never seen this. Uh, written by Stephen King. Uh, I think I selected it because I'd never seen it before is one of the reasons why I wanted to to dive into this. Um, I was curious. Yeah. And um, then uh, on top of that, we're going to do a little chaser film, which is you definitely got to stay tuned for that. Me talking about house is going to be very entertaining. Uh, yes. I'll tell you that. Uh, Chris, we have a special guest today, too. Who do we got? Yeah, we are happy to bring on Max from Galaxy of Film. Uh, which is an uh, awesome podcast. You can find all the usual places, but I want you to talk about it. Welcome, Max. Tell us who you are and uh, what your show is all about. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm Max from Galaxy of Film. I'm the host over there and the founder of everything we got going on. Um, like you mentioned, we are a podcast. We do weekly film discussions as well, and those kind of range between um, new releases, older stuff, some cold classic film, just kind of whatever picks our interest for that week and we usually have a pairing film to go with it whether it be the same director same actor same year release just something to kind of tie the two together um and we also have stuff going on, on our youtube channel galaxy of film productions we have some short films in the works over there and we just finished releasing the uh the finale of our new york series uh our vlog series recently so cool. that's pretty fun as well what is your? Uh, I saw you guys did an episode on Batman. Give me your the, quick... the Batman. God I'm sorry, the Batman. Batman. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, give me your quick thoughts. I would love oh man, I just saw it again yesterday for the second time. Um, yeah, absolutely loved it. Without giving away spoilers, um, this is definitely the detective side of Batman I've been wanting to see for yeah. for a very long time. It's kind of noiry, isn't it? A little bit, a little bit of noir mm-hmm. going on there. Yeah, definitely, definitely, man. Yeah, it's uh, Chris. Have you seen it yet? No, no, I okay. I don't know when I'm gonna have three spare hours. So. <laughs> it, it, it's all three hours, dude. There's no it joke. It feel like it, in my opinion. Yeah. I love it. Really? It does go okay. pretty quick. Yeah, it does go pretty quick. But it is is a long movie. All right, let's let's jump into this. Let's start talking about our creep okay. show. Um, or oh, Chris, do you have some, something to say? <laughs> I mean, always. But yes. Uh, <laughs> what do you got? I, I I mean, I'm curious why you never seen this. And Max, this is a first time watch for you as well, right? So Yeah, this is. Can you guys start with that? Like, sure. why did it take you so long? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead uh, quickly here. I It, it scared me, <laughs> the poster. <laughs> like, even as a little kid, like the whole Crypt Keeper stuff. I watched Tales yeah, from the Crypt when yeah, I was yeah. growing up. Like, that scared me a little bit. But there was something about this that's always... And I'm... I'm I say I I am a horror nerd I would say, but like I have a very specific type of horror movie that I love, and this is not one of them. Anything that okay. is like focused on gore, gore or gross out stuff, it's mm. generally not my thing. So I I honestly didn't even know George Romero directed this until mm. like two or three <laughs> months ago. Uh, so and it, it, I mean, and granted, it's not exactly his normal type of film. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of why it definitely kind of made me disgusted and uncomfortable. Just the concept of it. Uh, that's why I kind of avoided it. Max, what about you, man? Um, growing up, my parents just didn't have a lot of horror films playing around the house for whatever reason. Um, like I wasn't, I, I, gosh, I didn't get into horror until I was 
in Miller High School, actually. Yeah. So as a teenager, now I was in early in my early twenties, I'm making up for these these movies I've missed over the years that I've heard so much about. So this is just one that's been on my backlog for five plus years. That I've, I'm you know just have had a chance to see until now. Nice. Uh, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. I think uh, because I was pretty much not parented that's probably why i <laughs> um uh, brought into it so early uh but i i guess i'm i'm specifically surprised with you dan because the reason i got introduced to it at a young age um only in bits and pieces was because yeah. it was a regular uh pick on tnt's monster vision with joe bob briggs uh, okay um, um yeah that's true so, yeah so and so like i but I, I totally get it because I also stayed up way too late watching Tales from the Crypt and yes. was, I mean, I, I still have like one particular episode that feel like I saw specifically way too young and, yeah. and it kind of left a, 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 a bad mark on me. Yeah. But um, I think Creepshow might have been the earliest example for me where I was like, oh, like horror like horror and comedy are intrinsically linked. Um, mm-hmm. That was interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Starting and, there. And, okay. We're going, starting with that. But I think it might've been from my early, from that early age, because I have that vivid uh, image stuck in my head of Leslie Nielsen burying Ted Danson in the sand. And, you know, at age 10 or whatever, like that was the naked gun guy and the cheers guy. So like, <laughs> even though Imagine it was just being super you seen that for the first time, dude, it shook me <laughs> a little bit. You know, yeah. You know what's crazy about that though, is you say that like, Oh, you, there's one that like stuck with you like that. Yeah. I didn't realize this, but I was randomly watching YouTube videos just for in preparation for this. And I came across creep show too. And there was a scene, a single frame scene. And I was like, Oh no, that's it. And <laughs> I, I watched it and I was like, Oh my God. I saw this when I was like seven oh, years old wow. and it has literally haunted me since then. Like this image will pop up every once in my head, like as an adult. And it's, it's sort of like, I've never didn't had no idea what it was. It's the one, the blob on the water. Um, yes. And the girl gets like eaten by the blob. And for some reason that was like burnt into memory. So there's something about these films that does, I think stay with you, especially when you see them young. Is it meant for young people? Think about like 1982, you got no. George Romero. It's basically what it's a it's a horror anthology. Yeah. Uh, it's it's mm. set up like I guess like little comic book strip type things. I mean, the visual style obviously is an homage to the the EC comics. But you, you talk about the horror comedy part of it. Is this targeted at kids, do you think? I mean, it's it's interesting you say that because my initial my gut reaction is no, but I mean the frame story is a kid reading. Yeah horror comics what's what's your take on that max yeah i agree it is for kids in my opinion i think this is one of the the perfect introductions to horrors as a mm-hmm. as a kid and like even though i didn't grow up with creep show i'll say i did grow up very heavily with something that was inspired by creep show was goosebumps which was yes. uh, it yeah, took that format broken yeah. into tv of course you know it, you know obviously i had the books and whatnot too but I mean, that's how I discovered Creep Show initially was because of that inspiration from Goosebumps. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that, and that also reminds me of uh, the show, a show that Dan and I grew up with. Um, Are you afraid of the dark? Kind yeah. of Nickelodeon. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I mean the the way that you talk about, like, just is it is it inherently like the structure of it? Like, even take away the frame story and the comic book element, 
Is it just because it's got that kind of like inviting playfulness factor to it? Because it is still written by Stephen King. And even though a lot of his books attracted young readers, myself included, mm. like we, us kids that read Stephen King knew that we were reading something that was for grownups. Yeah. I would say it's because of that, like you say, it's, it's inviting in a sense. Like it, this, if you look at this compared to, um, oh gosh, what's what's a better comparison? Just <laughs> <laughs> throw it out there, whatever it is. Well, the, the the thing that comes to my mind right away is the the horror anthology series VHS, mm-hmm. which uh, is yeah. like there's yeah. nothing child friendly about that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right with that, man. You're. I've only seen bits of that too. Jeez. Well, I think the inherent, like, comic books are for kids, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But, I mean, let's be honest. Like, this is an homage to comics that were made in the 50s by guys who were growing up in the 50s. Mm. So, there's a... The distance there is pretty pretty far. Uh, so, there's... You know, it's, it's basically Stephen King and George Romero remembering their experiences with EC Comics back in the day before they were banned, essentially. Um... So I don't know, there's definitely sort of, you know, we assume comic books are for children, but that is that is that assumption no longer true now that comic books have become like the lingua franca of like reality <laughs> of like all entertainment. It's all comic book stuff. I mean, I don't know. Like, do we, well, let's start there. Are comic books for children? I'm going to throw that. Yeah, you're just getting. I know, dude. More, let's more go deep on this one. Let's go deep. Um, I'm, I mean, I grew up with them and. But I think there's been something strange in the past you know, 20 years, maybe 15 with MCU that has like weirdly made it this kind of uh, what's the word like omnipotent kind of monolithic thing that uh, you know, maybe it's Disney, maybe it's whatever that yeah. has just made it the assumption amongst the masses, at least in America, maybe elsewhere, too, that comic books are now a thing that is just for everybody like it's been so yeah. it's been so pushed into like the 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 ether that like i don't know but is it has it always been that way or no is it- oh no 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 like uh, max what do you what do you think about this like how, did you grow up with comic books were you a comic book guy growing up yeah i grew up with, with comics of course you know i had a little comic shop nearby and everything i'd stop by every other week to pick up some stuff um but like even like my generation like i'm, I'm 22 now yeah. growing up until you know right around in high school when the mcu started blowing up i agree it was like i'd hear it constantly from teachers adults who who it might be if they're older than me you know yeah. if you were seen reading a comic you were looked down on and as immature almost. oh that's what we grew up with yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know chris if i'm in my the minority here but like i remember comics being pretty i don't know what's the term i'm looking for they were not cool in the eighties, right? In the, in the early nineties. Right. Think, well, Chris? yeah. I mean, I think that it, the, the thing that makes me kind of agree with that right off the bat is because we had in our town growing up, Dan, this comic shop that was very much just like a hole in the wall. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, and that's kind of like the stereotypical kind of thing that you still see in pop culture today, even mm-hmm. though the reality is that now there's like this whole industry built on it and there's like huge big box type stores full of comics and tabletop games and all that um but yeah i feel like there was also like that whole you know backlash against like dungeons and dragons and so Mm -hmm. you know you would always have that crossover um 
But um, it's strange because we grew up in the 90s, Dan, and yet you still had like Batman movies back then dominating the box office. Yeah. And yet, and and like, I, I, I think like that wasn't just uh, driven by like tweens going out to the multiplexes, right? That was like. That's true. Yeah. A mass yeah. event, right? Yeah, maybe comics were always sort of around in a popular sense. I mean, obviously, they've taken on a different dimension in the last 20 years. Right. But um, in the early 80s, when Creep shows out, like, what do you got? The Richard Donner Superman movies? And that's about it, right? Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, it, you know, I think part of the appeal of Creep Show is that it's supposed to be, and I think the comics themselves are supposed to be really transgressive. Mm-hmm. Right. The whole point of EC Comics was show you gross stuff and awful stuff. And it got to the point where they basically shut down this entire part of the company because the Congress got involved, US Congress. Yeah. It was basically yeah. like, hey, this is not good for kids. We can't be promoting this stuff. And the, the company's like, okay, we're done. And so it didn't last that long. Um, and so it, yeah, I do kind of find it interesting. Like, do we think that? It's clear that when they made this movie, they thought that these comics were transgressive when they were growing up. Now viewing this, does that take a little bit of the edge off of it? Or do you still feel like it, does it feel transgressive to you guys watching it? I feel like there's this, I it's because that's so much, it's so wrapped up in nostalgia for me. So I feel like you have a clear eye on that, seeing this for the first time in 2022. Cause like I still watch like the, 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 the head in the sand um, segment in particular. And it, that yeah. does feel like really subversive and uh, like taboo. Um, and just like overall just like really gives me the heebie jeebies still. But is that wrapped up in my memories of it from being a kid? I don't know. What do you think, Max? Um, gosh, man. <laughs> Does it, I mean, does it feel to you, Max, like it's like you're watching something taboo or dirty? Right. Like, like, like when you're a kid watching Goosebumps, even if not Tales from the Crypt, like where does it fit in that spectrum? I'm I'm trying to like, not really, honestly, man. And I I have to say it's because of that, that comic book, you know, um, presence within Creepshow because of how welcoming it feels um i i like know like yeah for us you know comics are acceptable even in, as we're older compared to kids but still there's a sense of of comfort with that yeah i view you know when um when i when i see a comic book in, in a film you know typically i'm a, i'm comparing or filling that with uh with a pleasant memory of, of these growing up right yeah right so no. in my head like, this is something all right this is what another kid's reading this is welcoming for him. It's also, it, it reminds me of a, of a good feeling of doing this too as a kid. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. definitely. And I mean, you, you think about how the film was constructed and mm. they made it, you know, explicitly. And this is where the self-aware, self-aware horror stuff comes in. It, it's like he got Tom Savini and everybody involved in the special effects to make it feel like a comic book. So a lot of the horror is filtered through this, kind of colorful and vibrant frame mm-hmm. that in a weird way on the one level. Yeah. Like it, it is very welcoming, but and it kind of makes it a little bit increasingly creepy on some level. The, the, like I'm thinking like the red light they constantly use. Yeah. Uh, especially in the, um, 
whatever the one with the, the university and it's in the crate. Um, you know, it's, it, it's so over the top there. There's a whole irony involved to this film that to me is why it's funny and engaging and the horror aspect of it, it's a very specific type of horror. It's like a moral horror. Yeah. Where the person who transgresses gets their, you know, the, the revenge is had, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, it feels so different than horror movies today. Mm-hmm. Like, does that happen in horror movies today? Like, where someone does something bad and they get, like, punished for it? Right. I mean, the with the crate is an interesting example because i i felt like i've i i really uh had a perhaps different reaction to that one watching it as an adult versus remembering it slightly from tnt as a kid because that's the only segment in my estimation anyways tell me if i'm wrong where it's like yeah you that you have this transgressive uh wife character yeah. but like Adrian Burbo and then uh, Hal Holbrook as the kind of metaphorically castrated husband. And so like, there's that whole like misogyny thread running through it too. And so that like, just the, especially the ending of that one, even more so than the Leslie Nielsen one is just like, it makes me feel sick to my stomach at the, at the end of it. Even it, even though it's like essentially just a throwback to like, B horror movies with like the monster in the crate under the stairs, right? <laughs> but she's but a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, we're, what, what, yeah, I think that that's, I think you're right. Cause like, you look at horror movies nowadays, and like, we were talking about this uh, with the new iteration of Scream, right? Where it's just like you have characters that are essentially empty vessels that are just like avatars for, you know, suspense and violence. But even in Creepshow, where it's, you know, you think you'd have so much working against that because there's these little self-contained vignettes, but these characters have so much more going on with them yeah. than the average, you know, like, teenager walking up the stairs in a movie nowadays. That's a uh, good point. Yeah, the characters are, there's a lot of depth to them. Um, right. Even have, even when it's super silly. <laughs> do we, you guys have a favorite segment here? Max, did you have one that you, like, you just loved? Oh, out of the the five for Creepshow, I really did yeah. enjoy the I forget the name of it as well the the the, the creature under the stairs actually that was my was favorite good. bunch yeah and that was like the longest one I think right yeah like forty minutes one long. it's like the centerpiece yeah yeah mm-hmm. what did you like about it oh the coloring specifically yeah it's the, like, the red lighting was great especially and also the the prop design on the actual pup I'm assuming it's a puppet for yeah. whatever that creature is looks great as well I'm a big fan of like some of the Jim Henson work done in other films yeah um so when it, it comes to puppeteering and, and creature effects I always try to take notice of those yeah it's really beautifully done um mm. I, I think I would probably agree with you like I I, I do feel like the crate one to me w- had the most um what's the term i'm looking for the maybe most muddled moral message to it yeah sort of like going back to what chris was saying yeah yeah morally complicated that's probably a better way of putting it um yeah i mean i thought it was just there's something super engaging and intriguing there's like a weird undercurrent to the whole thing Mm -hmm. that felt very Mm -hmm. macabre um my least favorite one was the bug one, of course. Chris, did you have a favorite? Did you have something I mean, that like sticks out? Because right? you have like history with it, so yeah. I, I I am still partial to. I just looked up the name of it. Something to tide you over. Okay. Um, 
the the Leslie Nielsen Ted Danson segment just because it's such a strange set piece of like you know pull the extension cord and TV set out to the beach uh and like the interplay like Leslie Nielsen's legit terrifying he's, I think uh, yeah I mean he's a classically trained actor we see we this is the same year that Police Squad was on NBC right yeah so it's, it's such insanity. a weird juxtaposition isn't it right right um I I I I obviously like them all because I'm kind of a fanboy for this movie, but um, uh, I, I I felt like there was this um, element to this like one man showness to the they're creeping up on you the bug one, yeah. um, and I think just by if no nothing else it's like super impressive how they were able to like construct this whole like futuristic like it's now retro futuristic uh, mm. apartment. But yes. um, one of my favorite stories about um, them making this movie, yes, the puppet work, the special effects work is fantastic throughout. But, like, those are legit cockroaches. They, like, went and to, uh, uh, like, a cave um, with entomologists in Trinidad. Yeah. And they, like, collected 20,000 cockroaches yeah. to film that <laughs> segment. Like, can you imagine any, like, only George Romero would be that brazen and insane to like yeah. book a trip to trinidad I feel like stephen king was egging him on because like i right, right. happened to find um an interview with stephen king and this is uh stephen king's first screenplay we should know too mm-hmm. um he was interviewed by david letterman for this press tour and he talks about that he talks about how they would like these um these guys would get in like i guess uh kind of like bio suits, biohazard suits, which you see all the time now because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and like lay down in bat guano and sit there. Uh, he's explaining this to David Letterman live on like, you know, national TV and the cockroaches and they're like a foot long cockroaches. Some of them would start to like move around and that's how they would capture them. Cause you have to like lay still on the cave floor. <laughs> I mean, it's like this, like Jeez. insanity. Like that's just like, you could yeah. not pay me enough, man. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Like, there's no way. Um, I mean, that kind of goes to like you know, thinking about taking a step back and thinking about this movie from a bigger scale. Um, I think the one thing that going into it, I was a little bit sort of reluctant to. I don't know. I wasn't excited about it, was the the anthology aspect of it. How sure. do you think that that how do you think the frame story worked here and how do you think each segment does each segment play into that frame? Is there something linking all of these together or is it just sort of uh, you know, a grab bag of different horror stories? Oof. Uh, it does. Tough questions does, tonight, folks. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like a grab bag to me. And I yeah. think that's part of the appeal um, is that it, it, that playfulness comes not only from like, the characterization and the monster effects and all that, but just from this idea. And it's like that, that pulp uh, comic quality to it, right? Where it's like the, those comics that King and Romero are inspired by literally were just like ramshackle haphazardly put together by a team of people that are just like pushing them out to the public. So like, they're not thinking about like, what's the overarching thematic blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, on the same token, like to just to come back to that wraparound story again of the kid um, and the dad. I mean, if we're you mentioned this concept of transgressions and you know take away the 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 complicated aspects of the crate, even though that's 
arguably once again the centerpiece of the whole thing you have this really intensive uh and you know you can imagine from my point of view as a kid watching this um are like basically an argument from these like adult filmmakers that like of this kid that justifiably wants to kill his drunken father i don't know it's <laughs> yeah what do you make of the frame story i uh to yeah to me it was just going back to the whole the idea of the comics is sort of being a safe place for all these yeah. ideas that your parents won't tell you about right i mean to me it reminds me about growing up of uh, mad magazine that was mm -hmm. my sort mm -hmm. of window to the world um and it was all these kind of crazy kooky political ideas and stuff like that that my parents would never talk about um but you're reading as a 12 year old and you kind of feel like yeah, well, yeah it's kind of a wink wink i'm in the know now about what's going on in the world not really of course um but yeah i mean that frame story it it, it does feel very old-fashioned and very 80s to me like mm -hmm. this whole rebellion against um you know like the leave it to beaver americana thing like it just it, it feels like his father's so uptight he yells he drinks he's like a caricature of a father from you know 1955 or something yeah yeah, yeah. He, he's the stereotype like asshole dad yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely right and mm -hmm. uh so to me it's sort of seeing it now you know it's like oh, okay this is a, it, it it seems very blunt uh yeah. very over the top i don't max did you kind of what did you feel about that the frame story on maybe this is because i just didn't grow up with this movie um yeah. so I'm, i don't have a nostalgia factor whatsoever for it other sure. than just the inspiration like i said um the framework story like i, I just didn't care too much about because yeah. of the father feeling very uh copy and paste as a stereotype yeah totally yeah yeah, he, he doesn't, there's not a lot of nuance going on there. No, no, it's pretty blunt, yeah. No. And it's, uh, I mean, okay, how about this, like, the comedic element here? Because horror comedy is something that I, I have such a, tr I have such troubles with. <laughs> you do, don't you? That's I the do have a, tr this. I have problems with it. I don't know, Chris, you, <sighs> how do I even, what's funny about this? <laughs> Explain to me the comedy of this. Oh my film. gosh! Um, you know, I, I do remember watching this film maybe six or seven years ago, and really having a bad attitude about revisiting it. Yeah. And in particular, the the, the segment that stars Stephen King um, as Ooh. the farmer. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> I I really yeah it really like it, it was a. But then once I got to the Leslie Nielsen segment, I was like, okay, I remember why I have like good memories of this movie. But then yeah. I we watched it again this week. I splurged for the collector's edition Blu-ray for oh. get ready for the podcast. And mm. um there was something I don't know, there was something really goofy in like the most endearing way possible of like Stephen King attempting to act under George Romero's direction. Uh and it this is the the segment one segment that he did use uh, an outline for from a short story yeah. uh, of his previously. The others are all original. Um, but uh, I don't know. There's something, and maybe it was because I was also reading a lot about the film to prepare for the cast. And uh, it really feels like you can, t you get a lot of that um, enjoyment 
and let's just like straight up friendship between the two of them. We talked about this a little bit with Evil Dead 2 and the idea of Bruce Campbell as Sam Raimi's ragdoll. And (laughs) it felt like Stephen King was like really just game in the 80s. And maybe it was because he was high a lot. But He was on he, a lot of cocaine. <laughs> a lot of cocaine. So, yeah. But but he did kind of, it did seem like he kind of like just gave himself over to this horror maestro and was like, do whatever you want with me. And there's like this great quote where um, King says that uh, uh, he asked Romero for some direction on how he should take this, you know, absurd character. And Romero says to him, Basically, uh, act like Wiley Coyote looks when he goes off a cliff and never change that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, there's this cartoonish element to it that just feels so, I don't know, it's, it, it feels way more innocent than it actually is. Yeah. And, and I think that's where it com- kind of comes back to what we started the whole show with, which is, like, this is kind of kid-friendly. Like, I feel like I could take at least that segment out and show it to my kids. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is pretty funny. Or they would be like, what the fuck's wrong with you, Dad? Oh, <laughs> maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Max, what do you, th- I mean, did you laugh a lot during this movie, you think? Do you find it, like, super comedic? Um, I'd say, like, the first half of it, you know, I found was, was pretty entertaining. I wasn't, you know, too big of a fan of the, the bug segment yeah. whatsoever. Um, I wasn't too big of a fan either of the the beach of the TV segment, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. the first three or really sold it for me of this one. Um, but just the the goofiness of this man, yeah, honestly, it, it like is this quite over the top, isn't it? Everyone acts like this is a comic book in a sense. Yeah, yeah it's very hammy. Yeah. It's very it, hammy. Very hammy. Very campy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Whole nine yards. Uh, yeah, it just. Uh, I, I guess why I'm so like uh, fascinated or trying focusing on this part of it is like the comedy element here is the the source of the self awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's why this movie is self aware. It's because on the one hand, it's trying to harken back to this you know period that no longer exists in terms of uh, what this comic book series was all about back then it's trying to go back in time mentally to a time when america felt maybe more i don't know settled or Mm. uh conservative there's all this stuff built up in it you know viewing it from the 80s back to the 50s um that I don't know. I find very fascinating because the comedy of it to me, like I'm not trying to argue that it's not funny. There's tons of humor in this, especially the Stephen King part. Um, but I think the type of humor that it is really reveals what type of, of film it is and what type of perspective that Romero and Stephen King had. It, it sounds like, and I don't know, I, I didn't read too much on the conception of how this came to be, but it sounds like like Stephen King and Romero sort of just like bonded over the love of this comic book. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, essentially, there was also a weird um, kind of funny story about Stephen King trying to get um, both Salem's Lot and The Stand adapted. But, like, those are two of his most, like, in- insanely long and uh, convoluted stories. And they did end up both on one to the screen with, like, a three-hour adaptation and uh, another one as a TV show. Um, and so he had initially... Um, gotten hooked up with Romero about that. There was a vampire movie that came out um, through Warner Brothers called Martin, and basically some exec at Warner Brothers heard that like both of them were interested in meeting each other, and so they hooked him up, flew Romero out to Maine, and uh, they basically came up with, yeah, they talked about their love of this comic book, 
And so they were like, oh, how about this? Their strategy at the time was let's adapt creep show, let's take do this creep show concept, and then that, as long as it's successful, will help us make a legit adaptation of either Salem's Lot or The Stand. Um, gotcha. Interesting. But then, of course, neither of those panned out with Romero's involvement. Um, though I, I mean, I'd be so curious to see what Romero could have done with that. But of course, both Romero and King kind of were on a downward slope um, once uh, once the late '80s rolled around. Well, it's interesting because this show, uh, this movie was very uh, pretty well received. Like it, yeah, it was shot for like what I don't know. It's like eight million bucks, I think, and it ended up taking home. Uh, over $21 million back in the day, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but you know, inflation and stuff like that. So it was successful. We got a sequel in what, 1987. Mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't like, it was like a, a flop or anything like that. Um, I think it opened up to number one. It was the, it's the only film that George Romero has opened to number one, (laughs) his entire career. And that's one of the things too, I find that this movie so interesting. It's so different than Romero's other work. Like it just doesn't feel in like uh, in watching videos and reactions to it, it's sort of like people talk a lot about the technical aspects of the film and how they think it's like you know it's really well done, which yeah I get. Um, but like the thing that Romero always brought to me, it doesn't even matter if it's like Martin or Season of the Witch or the Dead films. There's always this pretty extreme political commentary. True, and with Creepshow. It, it's just not there. No. It's just not there at all. Well, Carter's president while they're while they're in production. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Is there something there to like? It, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, in thinking about the theme of self-aware horror and irony, and pointing to other works of art and trying to make art based on that art. Um, is there how effective is this movie at the end of the day? If you're thinking about it in terms of sure, is it entertaining? 100%. I don't think anybody would deny that, especially if you're into horror or gore or disgusting stuff. You're gonna like this movie and like even just like macabre stuff. Um, but is there is there sort of some a blunting aspect to this? Is like the edge of this shaved off a bit for some reason? For some reason, I think that it is, and I can't figure out why. It doesn't really land with a massive punch to me when I saw it. I was like, oh, this is good and it's interesting. But it sort it sort of felt it felt very much of the early eighties, is yeah. what it felt like to me. Yeah. I don't know if you felt that way, Chris. Like what am I just am I talking gibberish now? Or no, I no. I mean we we touched on this a little bit with uh, the Dead Alive um episode, yeah. right? Uh and I think that that especially, you know, from the early 80s to the early 90s, that's when a lot of this, we were we were eventually leading to Scream 96, right? Yeah. Um, but they, you have, it's kind of that awkward transition period where, like, these films, the horror genre, is starting to become more sentient, but it has to, like, really do this kind of, I don't know, splat it's the splatter genre, subgenre and like uh anthology throw stuff at the wall, Tales of the Crypt, and you have uh essentially this lost decade of basically nonsense. But yeah. and if it hits you at the right time, especially growing up, especially with like Joe Bob Briggs doing the intros for it, yeah. like it's then it 
then it works on a really just like visceral, like you were saying, Max, too, about like the 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 coloring of the film and mm-hmm. the the creature design. Like, if you have all the right elements, it's going to hit just on like a proficiency level. And to some degree, Dead Alive does that too. It maybe has that kind of like political commentary. Evil Dead does this too. It like even to like another degree with how just how batshit insane uh sam raimi wants to get with stop motion animation and all that and so like ultimately yeah we're just like i mean we're in the pleasure zone baby that's what else else do you want well so this is a good good uh turning point here to talk a little bit about house because whereas this film i feel like has a resonance with horror fans doesn't really hit outside of that group all that much, I wouldn't say. House, on the other hand, has become a huge cult film. And despite it's being pretty nonsensical, I would argue, in a lot of ways, it has had a huge effect on a lot of different groups of people, especially artists. Uh, Well, first, let's start out with, like, thinking about House. Do we need a background? Or should we just dive right into it? What do you think? I mean... Do, does, yeah. is, is, is it does its uh, reputation precede itself or it kind of does if you've heard of it i mean i feel like the basics chris what's the basics oh my gosh uh <laughs> it's a haunted house movie um my my sons are always asking about the movies that i'm watching for the podcast yeah. and uh th- they specifically asked about this one because they heard the japanese uh coming from the basement and uh <laughs> and my son is in an after school japanese class well, my youngest. Oh, cool. Nice. And and so like he didn't recognize any words or anything, but he's like, were they speaking Japanese? And so, then he asked what it's about. And then uh and I'm like trying to <laughs> ex- even answer that. No, I <laughs> like I, I started mentioning the cat and the piano, and then I was just like, you know, it's a haunted house. It's it's don't worry about it. Go to bed. <laughs> but like that's that's essentially it. I mean, that's one of the things that I think um makes a cult film a cult film is that it takes this a, a very simple idea and then distorts it you know hundredfold um and i i mean how what else do you want to say it's a group of friends uh all teenage girls they go to their go to one of the girls aunt's remote mansion um before the aunt and supposedly her dad are going to arrive uh and just chaos ensues they find out that it's it's haunted it's magical and each of them kind of has their own superpower too or stereotype whatever you want to call it uh both (laughs) supernatural (laughs) events unfold uh i'm curious what uh same question as with creep show maybe what is the what's the hold up uh i was all about seeing this movie when it was finally released in the u.s via criterion in 2010 I mean, uh, Max, what's your history with this movie? Did you know about it beforehand? I've known about this for a long time. What, it, the weird thing is, for whatever reason, back in like 2014 or 15, yeah. um, I discovered this movie the same way I discovered The Room. This got thrown into mm. the same conversation yeah. somehow. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I could see that. I could totally see that. Yeah. And so for the longest time, you know, I'm expecting essentially Japanese Tommy Wiseau for whatever reason. <laughs> the only thing <laughs> I knew about this movie is was there's a haunted house and it's yeah. called house. Um, I purchased it, the physical criterion copy about a year and a half, two years ago. Sure. Um, 
it's sat on the shelf, just haven't had a chance to watch it. I've been trying to get my co-host to want to cover this um, since we started Galaxy of Film, actually. So I was thrilled that you guys wanted to talk about it finally. I was like, you know, finally excuse to watch this. Yeah. Um, popping in, and I was, you know, certainly not greeted with the Japanese Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what did you... Uh, I mean, for me, I... God, yeah. I don't think I knew that much about this film at all. Okay. Um, I think I maybe I, you know what? I had seen T-shirts with it, right? Like the the cover or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's how I would sort of recognized it, and it it's been popping up on, um, HBO a lot because it's been on HBO Max, and I just keep on seeing it when I'm searching for horror movies, like the last six months or something, and so that I, I have no context of it whatsoever. Um, what Max, I'm curious to hear, like, what was your reaction to the whole thing? Like what, how did you feel after watching this thing? (laughs) What what emotions were you going through? (laughs) I I was just at a loss for words, honestly. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to lie, man. I I had, I had drink like one or two drinks while watching this movie. And I thought to myself <laughs> afterwards, like, was that too much? <laughs> like, was I just trash watching this movie and not understanding any of it? Yeah. Um, did you enjoy it though? Did you like, I think for anybody who's going to watch it, it's non, can I say it's nonsensical? Uh, it's, it's got a, it's got a certain dream logic to it. I would argue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a dream logic. And there is, you know, and I watched like a couple like videos about this. So like, there is an actual, I mean, the, the story that comes to mind here is the director asked his 10 year old daughter mm-hmm. what type of movie she would want to see. And like, she has a conception credit here yeah. concept by his daughter on this film. Like in he, the, the ghost, the decapitated head biting into the girl's like rear end. <laughs> that's her idea. Like, you know, okay. like all these ideas were like her, his daughter's, that's the level that we're talking about here. I mean, this is like gonzo, not in the sense of the production necessarily, (laughs) although it is, but just in the writing and the conceptualization, no one wanted to direct this film. They thought anybody, I forget what the, um, the production house was, but nobody involved wanted to touch this thing because of the script. Like if I film this, I will not have a career. Uh, and so eventually the guy wrote it, directs it. And it's like, it is hands down one of, if not the most bizarre films I've ever seen in my life. So yeah, to me, it's definitely in some sort of nonsensical realm. I don't know, Chris. Am I being harsh? No, I mean i i, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it nonsensical as a uh, insult. Um, but I yeah, also—it's not an insult. It's definitely not an insult. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I also uh, you know could could watch a uh, Eraserhead on a loop for the rest of my life and be happy. Yeah, God damn. <laughs> So, um, the one it's, I love stories about film conceptions where it's just like, it happens to be the right, like insane ingredients with creep show. It's very simple. Just like two horror people, one from the literary world, one from the film world and boom, you get magic. But in this case, uh, like you mentioned, the, the production house was Toho in, uh, Tokyo and the, this was right after like the, the worldwide success of jaws. Right. And uh, you know, filmmakers and specifically production houses like Toho had been really trying in the seventies to make something that could be a worldwide hit. 
um, you know, they they see you know the the beginnings of the of video gaming um, kind of being the nexus of how Tokyo becomes a global economy. Um, but movies just like they 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 don't they don't they're not sure how to make them at this yeah. point, right? But yeah. then they've been basically making facsimiles of. Uh, American B movies, both yeah. and everything from westerns to uh, you know psychological thrillers to whatever. And so there was this exec at Toho that met with Obayashi, uh, the director, who basically said like, and he had heard this idea about uh, you know the concept that his his daughter had come up with, and uh, at first the Toho producer was just like, uh, okay. No, but let's. Can we think about something that would be more similar to Jaws? And 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 Obayashi says, "Well, how 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 much money have you guys been making on you know your your ripoffs of American films?" And the producer says, "Well, no, we haven't been successful." And so he literally tells him, "Okay, so you've been losing money on comprehensible films. So why don't we try something incomprehensible?" <laughs> and and to- and Toho is like, "Okay, sure, why not?" Go go do do whatever you want to do, and so like not only does he have carte blanche as a filmmaker, but like they're actively trying to make something that's as far outside the mainstream as possible, and and this is what you get. Um, I mean, but the uh, yeah, <laughs> but the <laughs> the other fascinating thing, in my opinion, looking at it in longevity, like how does this eventually wind up stateside via Criterion in two thousand ten, like. It's one of those films that, you know, before this mass access um, yep. in the U.S. became kind of like this, you know, bootleg, uh, um, I don't know, golden totem that, yeah. uh, you know, budding filmmakers and, you know, art house people were um, passing along. Like everybody yeah. from, Tar- like you, you, can, you can obliquely see like Tarantino's influ- influences here and uh, a lot of uh, modern, both Asian and American um, horror films like uh, well, Evil Dead 2. Yes. And we yeah. just watched Evil Dead 2 as part of this. And I was like, well, this feels like a one-to-one. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Peter Jackson in New Zealand is still, is also like, you know, probably getting a, a big sense of this idea of um, a haunted house shouldn't be like the, the stereotypical like dry you know walk through creepy rooms with creaking sounds and then jump scares uh it should be like actually something that you would never expect when walking through a house whether it's daytime or nighttime or the gorgeous matte painting of sunsets and that are in the film too like that's the other thing it's nonsensical but it's like never beautiful not pleasing to the eye like, yeah it's a gorgeous film like there's so many different fascinating sequences that happen here now do they make sense together i don't think so um (laughs) but like there's it's like fireworks on screen it it is interesting i i um i think i appreciated this film much more than evil dead 2 because that was a first watch for me too and i was just like this this to me feels a little bit um like there's there's going off the rails then there's house and house yeah. is just like that much extra where it was like, Oh no, we're going to just keep going. Like the edge is here. We're just going to sprint right off of it. Not even think about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Max, does this remind you of any other films that are out there? Any of the films that you really like? Like what, it, well, did you like it? Number one, did you enjoy yeah. the nonsense and craziness of it? 
that's the whole charm in this, honestly. Um, this mm-hmm. is a movie I can definitely show someone, I feel like, some of my film friends, and they're like, yep, you are not going to understand what happens. You're going to love it. Yeah. No. Um, um, does it remind you of anything? Like, any other films that that are out there now? Like, it, it seems so unique, right? It, again, it reminds me a little bit of The Room, and maybe it's just because I heard of this movie the same time I heard of The Room. Yeah. But knowing how much of a disaster it was behind the scenes of that movie as well, Happy Boy didn't really want to touch it or work with Tommy, so he's like, well, I want to make my own movie. Yeah. You know, a little bit of that, honestly. Well, did, did, I guess the diving deeper into that then, like, do you mm-hmm. feel like The Room has such a fascinating life to it after it was made? Yeah. Like, its production obviously has its own thing. There's a movie about the production of it, Disaster Artist, which is a fun movie. Yeah, I got um, to meet Greg Sestro a couple months ago, actually. Oh, really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like the the humor of the room, like, in sort of the the cult status that surrounded it, it, it felt like, you know, are they laughing with Tommy? Right. Are they laughing at him? Like, what's that line there of like mocking or parody? Like, are they, it's really what, are they making fun of them or are they having fun with them? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's like a very distinct thing. And like with the with house, you know, is it different types of like audience engagement? You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's almost like house has this. I don't know. I was watching like some video and Bill Hader was like, this is the greatest movie ever. He was doing the criterion. Thing. Yes. I've seen one. that as well. Yeah. So it's like to him, it's like a, a, a house is this movie of respect. Mm. We should respect it with the room. It feels a little bit different. It feels like, Oh, this is kind of crazy and interesting because it's so terrible. But then that kind of makes it awesome. I don't know. Does that, do you feel like there's a distinction there between loving house and loving the room? I think it's kind of similar as well, um, you know, with House, because specifically, you know, you mentioned earlier the the scene of the head that comes out of the well and bites yeah. the girl on her on her ear. Yeah, you know, looking at that scene, you you can see the blue screen behind the head the whole yeah. time like, throughout this <laughs> yeah. entire movie. Like you can clearly see yeah. um, some of the strings with the fingertips and the piano later on mm-hmm. too. It's like we're seeing these very like off the wall. Um, and you mentioned, like, you know, a child basically partially wrote this film, or it's inspired by or conceptualized by her. Yeah. This feels exactly like that. <laughs> and that's why I think, you know, the, the special effects we're seeing, it might be kind of crappy. Yeah. Even, you know, even though we're looking for this, you know, this is many years ago, obviously. Yeah. And it's still kind of crappy, all things considered, but it's wild that we're seeing this on screen. <laughs> I could not tell you what other movie is going to have, um, a girl's chopped off fingertips yeah, playing piano <laughs> after her body just got eaten by a piano. And then half of it is spun around, partially spit out just yeah. for her to die further. Yeah. It's, it is, um, it's truly a unique viewing experience. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's been watching movies for forever, and I don't shy away from more experimental stuff, but like, this is like, even this is almost a bridge too far for me. <laughs> to watch this thing it was just like i don't know how i almost didn't get through it to be honest with you i was like <laughs> this, too, is, this I is i tough. had to take two days to watch this <laughs> yeah it's it, it's tough um how do we think about house versus creep show in sort of like their approach to house is i would say it's comedic right it's supposed mm-hmm. to be it's supposed to be nonsensical and 
it's a it's a different type of humor than creep show um yeah. but they're both i think common at the end of the day um what is the overlap chris where do you think there's a connection here between the two i mean this is a unique situation where it's the only episode of this self-aware horror series where we're uh you know trying getting in this international element right yeah um not and also i mean one thing that i think really does divide uh house from some of the other like midnight movie classics like the room is that it's got this really uh deeply embedded commitment to like avant-garde and surrealism Mm -hmm. um that is uh, in some ways kind of loosely connected to the horror genre in in the sense that you know horror films are often about the absurd right um even if that even if they are quote elevated or whatever art films um there is that like kind of very clear messaging throughout the dna of horror movies going all the way back to the b movies of the 50s where it's like this is supposed this is kind of silly right like (laughs) even the most serious horror movies have silliness to them um and i think that's ultimately the connective thread here you know across the pacific and you know five years apart but then also like we were kind of keep alluding to er earlier in the show you see that kind of getting to arguably to even further away from itself in the late 80s early 90s whereas you go back to uh what we end up doing here on the last episode of this series is in last house of the left with Wes craven and the advent of exploitation filmmaking um that it feels like there's there's that subversiveness that is like kind of fading away already in 77 yeah but and yet like it took you know almost 30 years for the film to get a wide release in the western world so i don't know that's it does feel subversive though doesn't it it does i don't know max when you saw it did did it feel kind of like that original question of creep show did it feel kind of taboo and unnerving um a little bit yeah i mean it's 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 tough now because I feel like we've seen everything with the internet and like every movie and like, you can see whatever you want in the world, but there Mm -hmm. was still something about this because of its own dream logic. It's sort of like a poetic logic that it has going on. Um, that there was something about it that is very unnerving. I felt, and you know, it's interesting Chris, you bring up last house on the left because that, you know, Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham said, Hey, this is a reaction to Vietnam. Yeah. Well, House is a reaction to Hiroshima. Right. right? Yeah. Like there's this whole sort of um the director grew up in Hiroshima. All his friends died in the atomic bomb mm-hmm. drop wow. that we dropped on them. And you know, his and then obviously the subplot of the aunt having a husband who went to war and never came back, and that's why yeah. she's becomes what she is. It there's a lot going on underneath the surface of House that you would never really pick up, but uh, maybe explicitly because of the nonsensical nature of what's going on. But there's, there's a lot of baggage to that film that um, was intentional, very intentional. It was not on accident that, you know, he basically wrote it about how the purpose of house. And he says this explicitly is that the young people do not understand what happened. Yeah. This will help them understand what happened. So it's essentially a world war two movie in a, in a sense. They are trying to, in a very similar way that 
last on last house on the left tried to capture the horrors of the vietnam war as it was happening this is about someone who went through world war ii and the horrors of that trying to tell a younger generation this is what it was like uh it was you know decapitated not decapitated fingers but cut off fingers playing the piano or like um getting eaten by what does she get eaten by at the end like one of the girls that has like a it's like a like a pitcher with teeth on it yeah like what i mean it's just <laughs> do, do we do you feel like that that level of political or artistic commentary is at all uh accessible at house no do you, but i mean that, that, that that's perfectly the perfect indicator of like criterion pulling it and then looking for those layers and i mean once you start uncovering them and i mean with it coming out in 2010 and the advent and like the advent of you know reddit and everything uh kind of ex exploding film criticism and yeah. film analysis in a democratizing way uh it makes sense and then and that's why like david lynch ends up having a resurgence and twin peaks comes back 20 years later and all that so yeah I, I think it's I think it's valid, but it's yeah, it's definitely inaccessible. But that's also part of the appeal, right? That's yeah, another part of like, like the subversiveness of horror. You have to figure out the you have to figure out the puzzle pieces to get the yeah. message at the end of the day. Ooh, wow. This is this is a good one. Um Max, would you recommend house to anybody that you know? Besides your <laughs> okay, besides your friend, your friends that are really into film, would you recommend uh, it to just like a random person that you know, your friends with? The people, I, I would rec the people in the audience of the Batman. Oh man, no, hell no! <laughs> <laughs> I, I would recommend this to, to any drug addict. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, what about Creep Show? A Creep Show, yeah. I mean, if you for kids my age, you know, um, if you grew up with Goosebumps, I think at least you can respect Creep Show. If it's not, if the story's not your cup of tea, because um, you know you're limited to five and compared yeah. to Goosebumps, which is I think three seasons worth. Yeah. Um, you can at least respect where it came from. Yeah, it's got uh, yeah. There's enough. There's enough on Creep Show, I think, to kind of entertain anybody and gross them mm -hmm. out at the very least. Um, what do you got coming up on Galaxy of Film? What's uh, oh, what's your next episode? Currently, we're getting ready to work on an episode on A24's Euphoria, discussing seasons one and two of that. Um, nice. Also pairing that with Spring Breakers, one of the earlier A24 films. Really, you're doing Spring Breakers. Chris, have you seen Spring Breakers? God damn it, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you have? It's one of my favorite films, Max. I'm just yeah, going to yeah, throw yeah. that out there. It's one of, I think it's a masterpiece. Are you serious? I do. I absolutely think it's a masterpiece. Oh, boy. I, I absolutely hate it. Oh, there you go. We're, we're going to end on a great, <laughs> conflicted note like we always do on Film Dude, Trace. Um, I have such weird feelings with it because I remember, you know, I, I was young when it came out. Keep in mind, I'm 22 now. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I grew up watching Selena Gomez as, as a kid. Whoa. So like, so I'm, yeah, it's I'm gonna be a little different for you. For us, it was like whatever. I don't know who these people are. <laughs> like, yeah, going into that movie, dude. Like, I was expecting, like, okay, Selena Gomez. She's about to be. She's about to be a badass. <laughs> <laughs> when are you guys gonna post the Euphoria pretty soon? Yeah, we post it tomorrow. Actually, we upload oh, nice. it Thursday. So where yeah, can people awesome. find you? You guys are all in the normal places, right? Yeah, we're on Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just everything at Galaxy of Film. We also post our bonus content, uh, the LFG series as well, with our normal main show. Um, and then, and then you on, on YouTube, are you on Twitter? We are on Twitter and Instagram at Galaxy of Film. Um, and then YouTube hosts all of our vlog series whenever we get together and 
for certain events. We we're getting ready to go to Star Wars Celebration in a couple months, so we'll have oh, some nice. content based on that on the YouTube channel. Way cool, man! So definitely check it out. Uh, thanks for li- thanks for joining us, Max. Of course, Chris, man, as always, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this has been Film Trace.